Council, I'm here today to request reversal of a ruling of a grant of summary judgment in the District Court to defendants Drake University and Gazina Gerhard. The claims plaintiff continues to pursue, as you're likely aware on this appeal, are FMLA discrimination, FMLA retaliation, ADA retaliation, and Iowa Civil Rights Act retaliation. Margaret Corcoran served as the budget and office manager of the Drake College of Arts and Sciences for 28 years prior to being terminated in October of 2019. In July of 2018, her outgoing boss, Dean Lenz, wrote her a thank you note saying, thank you for your wisdom and assistance these past 11 years. I know you will be a big help to Gazina as you have been the, to the past five deans. With me gone, you are now the institutional memory. This was consistent with Dean Lenz's feedback directly to Margaret over the years that she served for him. And this was in contradiction to the feedback she received from Dean Gerhard. We request that this decision be reversed because the district court ignored Margaret's evidence. It discounted Margaret's evidence as self-serving. It failed to view the facts in the light most favorable to Margaret. And it made credibility assessments, primarily recordings, that it discussed as being surreptitious. Where we end up, when we look well, at Council, the- Well, Council, would you briefly summarize what evidence was uh, put forth to show that uh, there was a, a discriminatory purpose in rendering the, uh, in, in making the termination decision here? Yes, I mean, that is the heart of this whole case and where I was headed next to show that the facts were not interpreted in the light most favorable to Margaret Corcoran, and that really boils down to pretext. We can discuss it as causation within the prima facie case requirement, but oftentimes the two analyses are merged, and I think that's helpful here, just to cut straight to the heart of the matter and go to pretext. And the things that indicate that Ms. Corcoran was not terminated for a a legitimate non-discriminatory reason include that she complained no fewer than five times, and Drake, in contravention of its own written policies and three promises to her, failed to undertake any investigation. And what we got instead... Well, um, give some context to what you're describing here. What, what transpired? Uh, what, what action... Uh, did she seek or were, was denied? What action did the school take against her? Uh, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm just wanting for you to flesh out the, the factual foundation for your claims. Absolutely. So she, I should start with uh, Dean Gerhard started as her supervisor in July of 2018. So Dean Lenz leaves, Dean Gerhard comes on board, in the background, there's some chatter and emails we'll get to later between uh, Dean Gerhard and also a new provost, Sue Madison. But face-to-face with Margaret, um, there's a meeting in September where Dean Gerhard criticizes Margaret's time out of the office. Margaret describes her health conditions to Dean Gerhard and describes that she has multiple sclerosis as well as problems with her back and problems with her neck. Um, 
And Dean Gerhard says to her, I don't care if you have MS. You need to be in the office from 8 to 4.30. This is the primary point that launches everything in this case. So Ms. Corcoran, after that, ends up crying in human resources to Deb Wiley, who manages human resources. Well, were, were there specific leave requests made that were denied? No, so we're not dealing with an entitlement claim. We're dealing primarily with discrimination and retaliation under the FMLA. Um, and what was the discriminatory act? Termination. We're fast-forwarding to termination, and the evidence that we have of discriminatory motive all boils down to a record of emails behind the scenes that show that every time that Margaret Corcoran complained, um, HR and the managers above Margaret Corcoran uh, were working to set her up for job performance concerns, not to listen to her, not to, not to investigate um, what was happening with uh, Dean Gerhard and whether Dean Gerhard was legitimately allowing her the time out of the office that she needed or not. And um, so we're not discussing whether she got the FMLA time that she needed. We admit that she did get that FMLA time. But to us, it's very important that every complaint she made, and we had detailed this in a retaliation timeline in our briefing, every complaint that she made was followed by um, additional performance concerns being generated in the background. Well, Counsel, what about, uh, first of all, big big point, actually they never really worked well together. I'll wait till you're back. Uh, actually, they never really worked well together. You know, we have the, fortunately have a recording in January 2019, months before all this, uh, where uh, uh, Dean Gerhardt is complaining about her hours very plainly. And then we have, of course, as you know, many other recordings and memos over time about just her, her work performance. And, of course, I think that's where the district court rested it was on causation, that, that the termination was caused by all this other stuff, by, by the bad work performance, not by the, uh, any retaliation. I think that's a valid point in the sense that is that a defense that can be made? Is that something that somebody can interpret from the recordings and the documents? But to us, that's a classic credibility determination, classic defense for the jury to consider because it's very interconnected with the facts. So namely, were, were the, were, was the relationship between the two of them something that caused the termination, or was it the FMLA use and absences? So if, if we stick with the, the shifting burden analysis, and I think this is where you perhaps were going before I altered your course early on, is uh, the pretext is they've offered their rationale for termination as performance-based, uh, and uh, what's your uh, evidence for that being pretextual? Well, again, I mean, I think the primary thing is the failure to follow their own policies. And when I say that they promised her that they would investigate her formal complaint, you can see that at appendix page 45, appendix page 587, the, the end of the July 16th recording. So it's not only their written policies, but then they promise her in writing, if you make a formal complaint... And probably they should have acted under the policy with regard to an informal complaint. So we could discuss that, too. But let's just go straight to the formal complaint that she made on July 10th, because that was a detailed complaint in writing. After that point, they admit 
They admit in the, in the responses to our facts that they never investigated that formal written complaint after promising her three times and setting forth in their policy that they would. So um, admission to our fact number 70 at appendix page 70, 785 and our additional fact 37 at appendix page 775. They admit they did no investigation and they admit that was contrary to their policies. So under this, this court's case law, Edwards versus Highland, Roberts Dairy was actually a case cited by the district court. That, that holds that a, an employer's failure to follow its own policies is demonstrative of pretext. Um, but you also have this well, chatter. Counsel, again, I'm trying to connect it because you're, you're aware of the, of course, uh, uh, June 24 memo about the June 18 meeting. And you're aware of the June 28 meeting where they keep saying FMLA and job performance issues are separate. Uh, so it looks to me like we have months of them saying that um, they're separate. Now, how do you get them tied together? I think they tie together in the July 16th memo and that recording. If we, because that's where she's advised of her FMLA rights mm -hmm. and she's disciplined within the same meeting and the same document. And that follows, that July 16th memorandum and, and meeting follows her July 10th complaint. Um, we could go back and look at each instance in the retaliation timeline where she complains and then right after that there's... Well, counsel, in, in, the, in the, I have it in front of me, in the July 16th memo, uh, everything they say there, of course, they produce this, but everything they say there says FMLA is separate and they're going to go by it and here are the FMLA rules. So tell me why that's wrong. And then they have the long plan for improvement, which looks like a normal business plan for improvement. Well, again, these are words out of their mouths. Do we take them at face value or do we listen to the recording where Margaret goes on to share with Deb Wiley during that July 16th meeting that she still feels like she's being harassed, that she's not free to take her FMLA leave, and again, they, they, don't, they don't do anything except give her this memorandum and usher Dean Gerhardt into the room to discuss her performance deficiencies. So the two are very interconnected. Um, and I, I think if you're looking at this, I would look at it primarily as a retaliation case because of the timeline and the fact that each and every complaint that she makes to human resources is followed by them collecting information on her job performance. And not once is it followed by what they're supposed to do, which is investigate these complaints. And by the way, what happens if they would investigate the complaint? If they did investigate it, what record would we have at that point here today? It could have benefited the university greatly, but we also have some material in the record to show that it would not have. We have the, the chair of the English department making allegations that are similar to Ms. Corcoran's about Gazina's treatment of employees um, that come up in an employee sur survey way after the fact. These are the types of things that would have been unearthed by uh, human resources if they had taken the time to listen to Margaret Corcoran instead of developing a record to fire her which is one way to read the evidence. And as we've said, the evidence should be construed in the light most favorable to the appellant. Thank you very much. I'm going to reserve the remainder for rebuttal. Thanks. Thank you, Ms. Flynn. Ms. Reeve. 
Good morning, and may it please the court. As indicated, my name is Rebecca Reef, and I'm here this morning representing defendant Appalese, Drake University, and Gazina Gerhardt in this appeal from the Honorable Rebecca Goodgame Ebbinger's grant of summary judgment on February 28th of 2022. And as noted uh, in the briefing and in the proceedings this morning, it appears uh, Ms. Corcoran only appeals a handful of her claims that were initially raised to the district court, some of which were dismissed at the summary judgment stage, some of which were dismissed by uh, the court on summary judgment. And at this point, the only claims being appealed to this court are retaliation and discrimination under the Family and Medical Leave Act, the FMLA, and retaliation under the Iowa Civil Rights Act and Americans with Disabilities Act. And the reason I think that's important to note is that a lot of the briefing, a lot of the arguments, a lot of the, the facts raised um, in the briefing and even in the opening argument this morning may be arguably relevant, related, unrelated to some of these other claims, but we're not arguing about harassment today. We're not arguing about disability discrimination today. Those are claims that were raised and dismissed by the district court and are not on appeal today. So we're only looking at those for four particular claims. And although Ms. Corcoran may posit that this is a factually complex case uh, in which credibility determinations were made, weighing record evidence uh, is necessary before a jury, it simply is not. And the district court in this case uh, properly exercised well-established precedents in employment discrimination law, both on in federal law for the FMLA, state law, the Iowa Civil Rights Act, federal law, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and civil rules of procedure on summary judgment, Rule 56. And uh, we submit uh, defendants, Drake University and Dean Gerhardt, that after review of the party's briefing and oral arguments, there are really four main findings uh, that rise out of the briefing and arguments today. The first is one that was mentioned uh, by your honors in the opening argument, which is that only one adverse action is at issue here, and that is the termination of plaintiff Margaret Corcoran on October 6th of 2019. There are not other adverse actions or alleged harassment or hostile work environment at issue in this case. Second, at the district court and on appeal, Ms. Corcoran does not dispute the proffered and documented reasons for her termination on October 7th of 2019, which were documented in a lengthy termination memo and explained to her on that um, on that date. And through discovery in this case, uh, through briefing, through arguments, at no time Was it has a disputed issue um, at summary judgment as to whether the university followed its policies in the termination? We would submit that, yes, um, it was raised and questioned, just like it was in the preceding argument here, whether or not Drake University followed to the letter its particular policy on discrimination and harassment. But we would submit that that's a red herring issue and argument, as it was found by the district court in this case. It's simply not relevant. 
First, it's not relevant because Title VII does not require more than appropriate response and remedial action taken in response to a claim of discrimination and harassment. Second, just because somebody claims harassment and discrimination doesn't mean that's actually what's going on. And the district court pointed out in this case that although Ms. Corcoran used the words harassment and discrimination multiple times, that legally triggers no more than an obligation to determine whether or not there's an appropriate and remedial action that needs to be taken. And when we're discussing specifically Ms. Corcoran's July 10th of 2019 written formal complaint, the testimony in this case was that that, that the HR department had the information it needed to make that appropriate and remedial response. They had been involved with both of the parties to dis to the dispute, Dean Gerhard and Plaintiff Corcoran, for months. Uh, Ms. Corcoran submitted a multi-page, single-spaced complaint that well laid out what her concerns were and what she called harassment and discrimination. And as a result, the HR department prepared and provided the July 19, 2019 memorandum, and we have a recording of that meeting in which the HR department laid out three particular action steps to resolve any complaint uh, that Ms. Corcoran was making. And although opposing counsel in her opening argument indicated nothing was done or nothing was done to respond to the complaint or help Ms. Corcoran, she in fact testified in her deposition that she was aware of those three action steps, that they were, quote, good, and that there was no evidence following that meeting that there was any criticism of her FMLA usage, no criticism or mention of her medical conditions, no denial of any FMLA leave, and she made no other internal or external complaints of harassment and discrimination between July 19th of 2019 and her termination on October well, it was 7th. was an NLRB complaint, counsel, in September, right? That is correct. She did not make an internal or external complaint of harassment or discrimination, but she did make a complaint in September uh, to the NLRB, which we uh, submit is not related to the issues of harassment and discrimination. It's a completely separate issue that was handled by the NLRB. So, so was the <clears throat> were any university policies not complied with? We would submit that no. Um, you could argue about what constitutes an investigation and what constitutes a particular response. And although the university does have a policy indicating that complaints and complaints of discrimination and harassment will be investigated, I think what an investigation requires could certainly be uh, open to interpretation. So is, that a, is this a fact question? It is not a fact question we submit, and it's certainly not a material fact question uh, to, to the issues in this particular case. And that's why we indicated it's a red herring, because it does not generate a material disputed fact on the actual elements that are appeal in this case. And that's something that we submit. Well, what if, let's, let's say, what if, what if a fact finder disagreed with you and said that there's a university policy that requires investigation, and this was not a good faith investigation. This was not an actual investigation. Do you think that would be an immaterial fact if, if it was found by a fact finder? 
We do not, Your Honor, because even if that were a dispute or even if that was an arguable interpretation of the facts, for the reasons I just mentioned, it's irrelevant to the actual legal elements at issue here. And that's because regardless of whether there was a full-fledged investigation uh, in which different parties were, were interviewed or different evidence was obtained, the results of the investigation are undisputedly um, appropriate and remedial and responsive, as I indicated a moment ago. And Ms. Corcoran, in her deposition, agreed that appropriate and remedial action steps were taken, that they were good, and that uh, they were followed, essentially, but until the, her termination. If the policies were not followed, wouldn't that be, and a, and a fact finder found they were not followed, wouldn't that be evidence of, of pretext of the actual reason for the termination? They would not, Your Honor, because the issues that were raised in the complaint in the investigation are wholly unrelated to the single adverse action at issue here, which is the termination from employment. This investigation occurred in July of 2019. Her termination occurred on October 7th of 2019 for completely separate documented and legitimate reasons. And also on pretext, which we do want to note, plaintiff did not appeal or address in her initial brief. So we submit the issue of pretext was essentially waived uh, as far as an appeal issue under court precedence. The two are completely unrelated. And under uh, one of these this court's decisions, which is uh, Logan v. Liberty Healthcare Corps, it indicates that it actually takes more evidence of pretext than a prima facie case in order to determine whether or not pretext exists because that evidence is taken in light of the defendant and the employer's proffered reason for the termination. And in this case, the proffered undisputed reason for her termination is that Margaret Corcoran engaged in repeated, unexcused, non-protected attendance issues. So she was not at work. She was absent. She was tardy after she had been warned not to be and indicated in her action plan that she would not be on a going forward basis. That is undisputed. She also continued to make consequential budget payroll, other types of mistakes in her employment. She has not disputed that was the case, even in her self-serving affidavit. Well, that counsel, the district you said a magic word there, self-serving. Yes. Did the district court use the term self-serving and say she couldn't be believed because they were self-serving? Is uh, the term self-serving in the district court's opinion? That's the factual thing. I don't know. Go ahead. That is a great question. I, I don't know off the top of my head if that particular phraseology okay. is and used. Then, and but then, then I should, the follow-up is, did she in effect say that? Yes. Uh, and what the district court cited to, as we did also in our brief on appeal, is that there's a well-established line of case law that affidavits that are submitted that are, and I'll use the phrase self-serving because that does come out of the case law, are inadmissible to generate a fact material factual issue with this case. So I, I did not want to... The United States Supreme Court has reversed decisions, uh, cursorily, one paragraph, reversing appellate courts if they say, well, self-serving means we can't believe the plaintiff's arguments. Are you aware of those cases? 
but proceed if you need to. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't necessarily speak to those in particular, but what I can speak to are the cases that were cited by the district court and also in our briefing on this particular issue of the affidavit. And plaintiff argued that some of these were distinguishable, Anda and Garter Mountain, but we indicate that even if um, that particular phraseology is concerning, there is strong case law under the estate of Gray decision we cited from Iowa, as well as Stewart, which is an Eighth Circuit case that indicates a contradictory you know affidavit the date of the rule. Stewart case? What was that? Do you know the date of the Stewart case? I have it in my brief, but I didn't jot it down and specifically in my notes. I know we did case cite to make no, sure that all of that was accurate case law. Sure, and that is a, an additional issue with the affidavit that was submitted at the 11th hour in summary judgment by Ms. Corcoran is that it was contradictory. It was contradictory to some of the evidence in this case. And that also ties into a key issue that uh, plaintiff raised in her opening argument regarding this allegation that the district court made credibility determinations. It did not. And particularly on this issue of audio recordings, just because the district court used the term surreptitious does not mean the district court was making credibility determinations. They're legal in Iowa, right? One party recordings are legal in Iowa, right? It's a one party state. You know what yes. I'm referring to? Yes. Okay, it, proceed. It's, it's not so the criminally. district court surreptitious is a little bit misleading when they're legal under state law. Proceed. And they are legal under state law. It's not criminal. Um, there has not been any kind of criminal proceedings well, it's also for making this recording. Well, it civil law too, counsel. The recordings proceed. Yes. Divorce and, proceedings proceed. And in this case, it, it was a fact. It was an undisputed fact, and there was testimony from Plaintiff Corcoran that she made these audio recordings. There was testimony from Dean Gerhardt and the others there that they were not aware they were being recorded. Okay. That's not a credibility assessment. That's not a judicial weighing. That's an undisputed fact that one party knew that the recordings were being made and the other did not. And where that became key to the district court is that that is, unlike a lot of employment discrimination cases where it's he said, she said regarding what occurred in meetings, in this case we actually have contemporaneous audio recordings of 32 of the one-on-one -on -one meetings between Dean Gerhardt and Plaintiff Corcoran, in which Corcoran testified the alleged discrimination, harassment, retaliatory conduct occurred. And nowhere in any of those recordings has Plaintiff Corcoran indicated that the, uh, the comments or statements or criticisms that she says she endured actually occurred. And so that was not a credibility assessment or judicial assessment. That was pointing out the undisputed facts that these recordings occurred. And what is contained content-wise in the recording is contradictory to plaintiff's claims and contradictory to her affidavit. So in that case, it's not a judicial assessment. It is actually indicating the undisputed facts. And in my last few seconds, I did want to make sure I tied back into your question, uh, Judge Shepard, on the issue of pretext. Um, because even though we indicate we believe it was not properly appealed, just because Drake University may or may not have strictly to the letter followed its policy in investigating her July 29th uh, of 2019 complaint, that is not sufficient evidence of pretext for the termination decision that occurred in October on October 7th of 2019 and in light of employers' justification that has never been disputed. And while we haven't been able to speak to it specifically, the district court's ruling on a complete lack of causal connection.
connection is well established in this case and supported by the evidence, and we respectfully ask this court affirm the district court's grant of summary judgment. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Reeve. Thank you, judges. Um, I was actually surprised by one of those questions about self-serving affidavits because, man, that is all over the district court opinion. She used the term self-serving. All over. No, wait. Did she use the term, quote, self-serving, unquote? Yes. And and cites to case law that's completely inapposite, and I can't believe I'm standing in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals arguing about self-serving affidavits, actually, in this case, where our affidavit, you don't even have to consider it, actually, to get to pretext. It's, like, not even important. But it really was more or less a direct examination in an affidavit, which gave background context and other such things. Um, it did not contradict her deposition testimony, one iota. I'm very aware of that doctrine also. Um, so I just, I can't believe that we're talking about self-serving affidavits because the case law that is cited by the district court in that regard, and she does use that term widely, um, in addition to calling the recordings surreptitious and saying that we have to analyze the recordings knowing that Margaret knew that she was being recorded and the other parties didn't, which is so clearly a credibility determination. Um, well, I think it increases the credibility of the other side, by the way. Well, of course it does, yeah. but they can argue that at trial, right? I mean, they've got these recordings. They talked about them. Play them at trial. That's what this is. This unless is a trial it's so on one-sided, unless the evidence is so one-sided that no reasonable jury could believe. Well, that's certainly how I would present it. Another thing I was completely surprised about back there was this idea about this this hemming and hawing about, you know, did they follow their policies or did they not? I mean, the deposition testimony from Director Mary Alice Hill that we submitted, it's at starts at page 479 or so in the appendix, is very clear. I asked her, and I believe you said that you do not consider this a complaint of harassment. And I asked her if she did an investigation, and she testified she did not believe that it was necessary because Deb Wiley, the the uh, HR rep for the college, had been sitting uh, in the meetings, in many meetings. And what I say to that is Ms. Wiley was completely and utterly biased because behind the scenes in the retaliation timeline that we discussed, you can see that there's emails flying back and forth about writing Margaret up. She's an unbiased witness. That's what she is. She did not perform any independent investigation as the policies require. If you'd like to look at those policies, they're at page appendix page 529. And of course, from our standpoint, the failure to follow their own policies and promises, by the way, is absolutely not a red herring, but it is, goes directly to the issue of pretext. Um, the recordings are mentioned again, and there's this idea that you can listen to the recordings and not hear any of the dynamic between the two of them or not hear that it's uh, harassing or discriminatory. I beg to differ, and I would refer the court to the January 3rd recording that uh, Judge Benton asked about earlier. I think there are different interpretations possible from that recording. You can view this as people who just didn't get along, or you can view uh, Dean Gerhardt as asking and challenging Margaret about whether certain of her absences were actually FMLA absences, which, by the way, she does in the emails, too. So that, that does connect things to the FMLA. But there's no mention of FMLA in the January meeting, right? I, I think there's none, right? time out. I, I remember it as there's there's discussion of time out of the office. Yes, a lot. And, and the purpose that it was tracked 
and that there's some, like, there's like a yes it is, no it isn't, yes it is, no it isn't, and I believe that referred to FMLA time. Okay. And then there's the July 9th recording that is that, in fact, the impetus, I see I run out, out of time here, may I finish my thought? Yes. The, the July 9th recording that's the impetus for the NLRB complaint where um, Dean Gerhardt could be interpreted by, by some to be harassing, discriminatory when she instructs Margaret that she should not talk to other people, that it's unprofessional. She's heard she's doing that. And if she does it again, it's going to be on the list. Thank you very much for your time.